Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, now you guys know that I'm really into vintage stuff. I like vintage cars. I like vintage clothes. And I did an episode on Route 66. And nothing defines Route 66, obviously besides being a road, more than neon signs. I love neon signs. I think that they're just amazing pieces of art. I love the motion that you can kind of do with lights. Uh, I, I just think they're really cool looking. I mean, they're they're very colorful. That uh, they're you know they they they've kind of gained uh, you know a very strange reputation over the past couple decades, uh, but they kind of fell into you know being parts of uh, you know girls 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 or you know your checks cashed here kind of a thing. But there's a real resurgence, and and the center, in my opinion, of that resurgence is is the man I'm talking to today, and that is Todd Sanders, who is a neon sign artist, the probably the neon sign artist in the United States. Uh, he is based out of Austin, Texas, at a place ca- called Roadhouse Relics, where he makes fine neon sign art. So I am, I gotta tell you, man, I am so excited about neon signs. I love neon signs. Uh, I, you know, I, I did an episode on Route 66, which is like the king. I was of just neon listening signs. to that. Um, <laughs> I, I love that guy's books, and I had no idea he was the sheriff in Cars, which oh, is yeah. one of my. I'm, I'm not even ashamed to say that's one of my favorite movies. Really? I was, I was actually eating my heart out watching it, going, "Oh, they should have hired me to be a technical consultant." And then at the end of the movie, I was like. I don't think I could have made that any better, you know, down yeah. to the details of the tube supports with the neon on them and yeah. just everything about it was spot on. They yeah. did a great job. Well, why do you know it's funny since we're talking about Route 66, why do you think neon kind of became, you know, I, I don't want to say like the, the it, it kind of became the personality of Route 66. It's how people really attracted into the, you know, people into the motorhomes, into the restaurants. Why do you think like that particular road really adopted that method of advertisement. Well, it was basically the first highway besides the Lincoln highway, but, um, it's kind of hard to get someone to pull over off the highway. They have a destination to get to. And so you've really got to go over the top. If you're in a downtown city core, someone's walking around, they can easily kind of just dart into your business. But, you got to have dad pull the car over mm-hmm. and he's making time. And, you know, so you really had to kind of go over the top with the neon signs. And then you really wanted to outdo the other motels to, to see, you know, trying to get the people to stay there. And you had to attract the child and the mother and the father. You had to kind of have something for everyone. So, um, there's an old sign that said, scream till your daddy stops here. Right. <laughs> I've never seen that. It's a good one. Yeah. And so um, Route 66, just there's different aspects of neon, Las Vegas, Route 66, and Times Square. Mm-hmm. They all mm-hmm. had their own style, mm-hmm. but it was all over the top to, right. to really catch the eye. And there was a lot of competition for the viewer's eye. Right. You know? Well, I love, you know, I love, obviously I love the vintage nature of it, but it's also kind of the the way you could have motion, you know, the way you could really show motion. Uh, and you make a good point. I listened to a couple of your interviews and you make some really interesting points, including that neon signs are really two different signs. There's the daytime sign, which is the background. Then there's the nighttime, which is the, the lights. And that's really where you get the motion, um, where you kind of, you know, it's kind of like we're the moths and that's the flame, you know, that's yeah, kind of what they're exactly. going for, you know? Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I love how when I make a work of art, it it's actually two works of art. There's the one you see in the daytime, and then at night, it, it completely transforms and becomes where the graphics recede away, and really all you're seeing is the the, the light, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's when, especially if it has motion, it's it's uh, it's really a beautiful thing to see. Um, Neon 
animated motion neon predates cartoons in America. So it's actually some of the first cartoons people saw were neon signs with with a running (laughs) dog or a a dancing, you know, couple or something like that. uh, Steamboat Willie was, I think, 1928 and animated neon was in the 1923. Oh, wow. It beat it by five years, and it was in color in Steamboat Willie. Most cartoons until end of the 40s were black and white. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> That's really Kinda interesting neat. when you think yeah. about that. Uh, you know, they beat Disney to the punch. Claude, uh, what was the name? Who was the inventor of Neon? Uh, Claude. George Claude. George Claude, yeah, he beat, yeah. Uh, beat Disney. He's the name. He should be the, the, the Claude Studios, not the Disney Studios. Yeah, yeah, and um, he gets a great deal of credit but this other there was two swedish chemists um ramsey and travers if they hadn't done their part there would never be claude neon or neon signs um they found out how to isolate the gas from the atmosphere in 1898 so um they are kind of unsung heroes claude gets all of the credit but he took something they already had and he went huh you know that might make a neat advertising medium but they're the ones that really did the footwork figuring out they even there was no guarantee it was even in the atmosphere but they suspected it was there and so they froze the atmosphere and through fractional distillation they took off argon helium xenon krypton and then the last one was neon Mm -hmm. they pulled out well, you know, it's funny you say that. I mean, I, I agree with you to some respect, but it's kind of like giving the original bread makers credit for inventing the pizza. You know, it's like, well, yeah, they made bread. Bread been invented, yeah. and that's important. But, like, the guy who invented pizza, it's like, it's pizza. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and they, you know, they thought it was kind of a quaint little cute thing they could show the other chemists in the in the uh, laboratory. So it was never going to go anywhere beyond, like, hey, look, we've got this metal box with a glass lens, and when we hit it with an electrical charge, we, you know, see this fiery red glow and that right. in that neat. So George Claude does deserve a huge deal of credit for thinking like, well, you know, if we put that, we've been a neon or glass tube and put right. gas into it. And then he invented the electrodes. That was the, the big thing that really made neon take off is that was the patent, right? Then, and that yeah, were, yeah, the, that was the, the big thing, the luminous tube electrode. And, um, he owned the patent. He patented in 1915 so if you wanted a neon sign, even in America or anywhere in the world, you had to you had to uh, open up Claude. He was one of the first franchises in the world, wow. the Claude Federal neon or Claude neon sign, and then eventually Claude Federal. That's crazy. Well, yeah. I, so I wanted to get to, since we're talking about the history of neon, let's go through a couple things really quickly. But I want to get to kind of I want to get to your shop in a second. Um, but you know, it's kind of funny because, you know, you mentioned this as well, but you know, the first neon signs are essentially the Aurora Borealis and the Aurora Australis, which we've been looking at for, you know, since the, on, before mankind, you know, cavemen yep. and Neanderthals and all that, uh, which is a really interesting point. Then you mentioned, um, art and then George Claude comes by, oh, you know, the, the Swedish inventors pull it out of the atmosphere. Um, and then, you know, it's funny, I do this other show about pop culture technology and one of the mm. things we're talking about is the quantum pager it's an upcoming episode i don't mean to shameless plug myself during your interview i apologize sure. for that. Um, but what's cool about that is quantum technology quantum mechanics the, the the theory of quantum mechanics actually explains what's going on inside of a neon tube um there was this whole you know this 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 turns out to be i thought it was an urban legend but it's a real thing that quantum mechanics was invented to describe why a toaster coil turns orange and it's essentially wow. the reason what we're talking about here is you're essentially exciting yeah i'm going to dumb it down um but essentially what you're doing is you're running an electric charge through a gas the uh atoms absorb that energy and they get raised in their electron uh to a, a different orbit because that's unstable, they have to release that energy, but it doesn't get released as electrical energy, which was put in. It gets released as light energy, photons, and that's how you get the color. And depending on the gas, um, it's a different different color. 
uh, this is really interesting to me because what it's cool about it is that inert gases like the stuff you're talking about neon um krypton um helium hydro not helium i'm sorry but helium's used but i'm not yeah, helium is a noble gas hydrogen's used it's not a noble gas okay. um but all yeah. these things that are inert they don't they don't react with other chemicals meaning you can't turn them into yeah. other things but you can do this stuff with them. You can make them reactive. And I thought that was really the most interesting part of learning about neon signs is that they take these inert gases and they do something really cool with them. They make them reactive. I love that part of this. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's amazing that they were able to find something that was that couldn't be changed chemically, but could be right. It, it could, it could cause a reaction. I mean, it's just guys just keep playing with it and, and trying to figure out all of its properties. You know, it's uh, it's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's in, it, it's, it's really cool. So, so they find this things out that they've essentially created this as um, an advertising medium. So how did this really take off in the United States? Uh, Cause obviously talking about a, a, they were uh, George Claude, I should mention French company. So they were doing this in France. How did this go from being kind of, um, you know, kind of a novelty in Europe to coming here to the United States? Well, um, it was kind of a novelty in Europe, but it was also had the persona of being really glamorous and elegant. Um, the first neon sign was for a Paris barbershop, and then Senzano was the first company to campaign with neon, but it was uh, viewed as being really glamorous and elegant. Even the Eiffel Tower, the entire canopy underneath the Eiffel Tower was uh, bordered in neon. So it That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to have seen that. But, but they really yeah. kind of kept it just to minimal colors and kept it really kind of stoic in a way. In 1923, a guy owned a Packard dealership in Los Angeles named Earl C. Anthony, and he vacationed in Paris, and he saw the neon signs, and he said, I, that's, I want that for my dealership. So he ordered two, I think they were 12-foot or 16-foot long wow. Packard logos and had them shipped from – Paris to Los Angeles and when he put them on his building and lit them up the police had to come out for crowd <laughs> control because there was a mob in the streets that just caused this incredible sensation um, early on one of the first animated neons was a Frigidaire refrigerator with the door that opened and closed oh, all cool. night long and so it just blew people's mind that you yeah. could do this because they were doing it with light bulbs even in the late 1800s, but to have a linear tube that that lights up, it it, it there was a lot more detail that mm -hmm. you could achieve with that. Um, and just in you know true American fashion, we just decided to kind of make it our own. Like the Volkswagen came from Germany, but we created the dune buggy. You know, we right, cut right, it all right. up and put big tires and did this crazy stuff. And yeah. Neon's kind of the same way. We we just decided let's make it our own kind of art medium. And so um, people just started experimenting with flashing systems and then colored tubes. They started introducing golds and greens and, and deeper pinks and blues and different colors by way of um, tinted tubes. Hmm. And so you got a really could have a really colorful neon sign. Um, but it just uh, – it came along at, at just a perfect time when, um, I mean, the 20s were, we were doing pretty good, but the 30s really is when neon really started to take off because the the businesses needed something just to even stay in business. They had to right. really attract someone, and neon just filled that bill perfectly. Well, you know, it's it's funny because it, it, it was essentially a novelty. This is, it's coming in the 20s and 30s, which is, you know, that's a perfect time in American history, as you mentioned. It's like right when we're into glamour and we're into bright lights and everything. Uh, it's 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 pretty incredible. So it it has a pretty good resurgence. Oh, oh the one thing I want to mention, are those Packard, um, are those things still around the Packard signs? I have tried to find out whatever happened to them, and there's not a sentence written anywhere really? about what where those signs went. I'm sure... A lot in World War II, there was a big drive called um, "Scrap Old Signs," and um, 
they were doing rubber drives and different drives to get materials for the war. But um, there was a big drive to destroy old neon signs and melt them down for metal Mm -hmm. for the war effort. So a lot of those, you know, that's why a pre-war neon sign is really a rare thing because a lot of them were were destroyed to build Jeeps and things. I've said before, like, um, hammer your plowshares into swords. Well, you know, like melt your neon sign down and turn it into a Jeep, you know, like it it just, it, so a lot of the signs went, and I'm, I'm suspecting that they just kind of went away because Packard went away. Right. Packard was absorbed into another car company. And so the name Packard went away, um, in the, 50s. Yeah, I think it was but, a Mopar. I think it's uh, it was yeah, I think Chrysler it's Bronx. yeah, Dodge. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's possible that the Packard sign got turned into a Packard. I think they supplied war machines, so it's possible mm-hmm. it could have gotten oh, turned yeah. into yeah, a. Oh yeah, they had their own factory. So yeah. it's pretty interesting when you think about yeah. it. Um, I mean, and it's World War Two, post World War Two. It's uh, whenever I'm talking about things in history, that's always like a very interesting point in American history because at that point everything changes. One way or the other, nothing, you know, pre World War Two remains the same after World War Two, and yeah. neon signs were, were no exception. You know, it's kind of interesting that they got rid of so many neon signs, and yet the 1950s, especially with Route 66, is kind of, I think, the heyday for for neon signs. Was that kind of like almost, uh, you know, a mass purging? You know, and then the, the neon sign rose as a phoenix from the ashes of World War Two, um, or not, not quite that eloquent. No, you're exactly right. And um, I think the heyday of neon signs started directly after the war. Um, and then really in 1948, I've got these old signed trade journals and you just start seeing these amazing pieces that they they start coming out with. And that was really from 1948 to the early to mid 50s was the, the real golden age of neon signage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, we were on top of the world we just beat back the you know the 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 bad guys and we won and so neon kind of reflected that spirit that we were all feeling as far as just that era of uh american history it it, everything was kind of taken out even the cars got more outlandish and and you know everything was just kind of the over the top can do american spirit and neon science followed that right and i should mention we're going to get to the second but you're in texas and they're kind of known for you know even bigger than america yeah, so, yeah everything's big in texas yeah, i can only imagine what it looked like there uh, i should also mention one other interesting point i glossed over but i think is vital to what we're talking about here is a neon sign a neon glass tube if i'm understanding this correctly will essentially last forever. It is a vacuum tube with gas in it. And as long as the tube doesn't break, the gas isn't going to evaporate, you can kind of run these forever, which is a big selling point, I would imagine. Yeah, yes, it is. Um, I restored a neon sign, uh, the State Theater, in 1996. And there was a color of glass on the sign called uranium glass. And it they stopped making it in the 1940s and so i couldn't match that color so i took some of the neon off and i I matched it to this uh, veep green which is the closest available color those neon tubes are from 1937 and i still have them and they still work (laughs) so if it's if it doesn't become impure if anything inside the tube if it's done right if made right it might dim slightly mm-hmm. over the years because there is a droplet of mercury inside and it vaporizes. And so it'll slightly coat the inside of the tube and dim. So if you make a neon unit, it will last 100 years. But if 10 years, 20 years later, you make another, like the G breaks on your sign, when you put a new G in, it's kind of like patching a, a asphalt road. You can see the pat, you know, right, you, yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't quite match the rest. So right. you can tell that it's it's not. It, you can use the, exactly the same glass from your old batch that you made the original sign, but it's not going to match exactly. Right. It'll dim. It'll dim over time just a little bit, but it'll never quit working. 
And, and it's funny because, just a quick side note here, I just found this interesting. I don't know where else to put this piece of information. And I think you'll find it interesting. Light bulbs were an incredibly different invention um, when Edison was making them. There is a, actually a light bulb that I think is going on like 108 years. It's called the Centennial yeah. Light. It's actually in Northern California, and I've been up there and haven't seen it. I actually dated a girl from the town that the, that the wow. light bulb's in, and I didn't even know about this. So we think of light bulbs as being very throwaway, but in fact, when made properly, they last a long time, but it's not like neon. It's not even close to neon, but it's just an interesting fact. Now, really quick side note here, and I'm probably getting way ahead of us, but it's just a perfect place. When you naturally weather your pieces of art, is there a way to to match the weathering of the sign, the brightness of the neon, or is that kind of beyond what you do? Um. I have tried that before. You can um, spray hairspray on the outside of the uh, tube, and it'll kind of dim it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I work on movies, they want a sign that's really super dim. But um, what I've done now that's really much easier, and it gives you a lot more options, is I've got um, a transformer company in California that hand-makes these transformers and they have a remote dimming system on that I can attach oh. to the bottom so I can Ooh. dim them. <laughs> so you can dim them and make them look like they're but really old. Not, you're an artist, man. That's not what you want to do. You want to dim this with a dimmer, man. Don't you want to do it like, you know, organically? Yeah, I've tried. And um, Don't you feel but, shame when you do that? Don't you like, ah, this isn't what I've got into the business for? Well, not really. I mean, um, <laughs> they, uh, the customer sometimes wants it really bright and, and really dim. So I've always tried to give people a lot more options without compromising my own sensibilities sure. on something. But I, I, I kind of cut my teeth on the movies um, building props, and those guys want options options op, you know like right, as many right. options as possible so um the dimmer just seems to everyone seems to to, to like a, a dimmed piece but sometimes i'll i'll do a little hairspray treatment on the on the sign um it's really hard to control and make it look i i, I strive really hard to make these pieces really where my what I say is if I do my job right, I get no credit for it because right. you think it's an antique. And so right. it worked really, really, even with the hardware and everything, the, the little tube supports and the screws are all rusted and, and uh, patinaed. So um, uh, the, the neon, I try to... I don't do. know what patinaed means, but that sounds... What is a patina? What does that mean? Well, it's just... Um, it's it's weathered. It's, oh, it's okay. got a weathered finish on it. Got it. Okay. I love that patina. That's a great word. Yeah, I love that word. It's a good one. Uh, so let's talk about. I want to get into some of the like technically what you do with neon because I think neon is just really cool from a lot of different points of view. But you're you're kind of the pop culture neon artist in the country. You have a place called Roadside Relics in Austin, Texas. Roadhouse. Yeah. Uh, Road, Roadhouse. Did, did I say Roadhouse? I meant. What yeah, I everyone everyone calls it Roadside. Oh, no, no, Roadhouse Relics. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Roadhouse Relics. No, Roadhouse, is that's a Texas name. Roadside is not. That's that's a Route 66 outside I, of Texas name. I considered name. that first, and I asked some people, and they said, well, that sounds like a car lot. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll do Roadhouse then. You know? <laughs> so I, I named it Roadhouse Relics. No, it's a great name. Uh, so this is in Austin, Texas, and uh, it is an incredible, incredible place. So let's talk about, let's go way back if we can. So almost to the age of, of the, the little kid behind you. Let's go back to when you were a kid. What was it about neon? I imagine neon really does appeal to children because it is bright. It does attract your attention. Um, like when did this when did this start, or is this a, a recent thing? Oh, it's it started back when I was a. It, some of my earliest memories were neon. Really? I um yeah, and I didn't realize that until years later. I was in high school and I kept seeing this a couple of memories. I remember one time this drive-in that we used to go to like a drive-in burger place and they had green and pink neon. And I just always, it always kind of affected me and it made me really happy and I loved it. But then in my memory, there was this, I didn't even know what it was, but it was an orange ring and a pink ring and it was just burned into my memory. And, um, <laughs> I was like, where was I? I can't even, I don't even, I just have this memory and I don't even know what it was. <laughs> so my dad lived in Huntsville, Texas, and he moved to Riverside, Texas, which is about 
18 miles away and I helped him move. And then that night I turned to leave and I passed this barbecue joint Mm -hmm. and there's that orange and pink double ring and it's a clock on their wall. And I went, Oh, so I called my dad later and I said, you know, I remember that orange and pink ring. And he said, we lived right by that place when you were two years old. Oh, wow. And so I'm like, wow, that's, that's gotta be one of my first memories is a neon, you know? (laughs) And so, um, neon has been, you know, something that's been affecting me for, well, I just turned 52 yesterday. So half a century. (laughs) Literally. That's crazy. Um, Well, you know, and it's it's funny because in some ways, neon for for you is kind of like how jingles were for me. Like I can some of my earliest memories are like little songs you heard on commercials, which is yeah. which is weird because it's the same thing, right? Like you got hypnotized by an advertisement for a barbecue place, you know, and I've got the empire, you know, empire carpet theme song stuck on my head that oh, I'll yeah. never leave, you know. And it's 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 kind of funny how advertising works. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's, you know, for better, or for worse, it's kind of weird that we live in a, you know, generation where like the advertising is like what sticks with you. It's those are earliest memories. Yeah. I think I even remember the phone number to empire, you know, like 2300 <laughs> empire. Yeah. 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 You know, so let me, quick question on empire carpeting. You're in Texas. You've always lived in Texas, right? Yes. I, 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 finished high school in 86 and I spent six months building hot rods in San Diego. Oh, that's so cool. That was the only time I ever lived outside of Texas. Well, let's get back to that. But I want to just quickly close up empire because I grew up in Chicago. I thought that was just a Chicago place, but you heard it. was that a national thing. Well, it might've been WGN. Um, uh, cause they were out of Chicago. Yeah, so, Cubs but, games. Yeah. I bet you watch a lot of Cubs games on WGN. Yeah. Although you might be a Texas Rangers fan. Oh, that makes so much sense. I bet that's what it is. So, so you spent six months doing hot rods. When 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 was that? Yeah, I was I was eighteen. I just finished high school, and I um, followed Horace Greeley's advice and went west. And yeah. I decided I just had no intention. I didn't even take any tests to go into college. I'm just like, no, there's. I'm going to go build hot rods in California. So I don't. I'm not ever going to college. And so I went to Los Angeles first, and then I went, ah, this is kind of too big. So I went down to San Diego and uh, really liked it. It it felt kind of smaller and and really just – it was very welcoming and and kind of – a lot of historic stuff still around. So I got the phone book the next day and I started, I was living in a hotel and I just looked through at all the hot rod shops and I visited a few and I found this one called Antique Alley Hot mm-hmm. Rod Shop and I went in and I had painted dump trucks and hunt in Houston. And so I went into Antique Alley and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a big, and I loved cars. I've had, I bought my first old car when I was 12, an old 51 Ford truck. So I had a lot of old cars. So I I love cars, but I'm kind of made out that I was this great, neat, big car painter from Houston. And all I'd ever painted was dump trucks, (laughs) asphalt paving company. But I I backed it up. I, I went in and instantly was. You know, we were chopping tops and doing all the body work on old 29 Fords. And, wow. Yeah. So, so, have you, so you've always been into cars. Is that like a, still a hobby? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got a 59 Chevy pickup that I was working on this morning, and I just finished. Uh, we kind of outgrew it. I've got a son and a wife, and a pickup. We're kind of cramped in there with the dog. So <laughs> I got a 51 Mercury barn find that was parked in 1964 right. and it came, came out of a West Texas garage 50 years later. Wow. And so it's still got the original paint, but it's all like customized frame with the airbags and updated engine with automatic and AC. And Oh, you yeah, updated talking, it. Oh, it didn't come out yeah, of 64. I, yeah, that I, makes I, sense. I had a guy named Mercury Charlie do all the work and I <laughs> traded neon for the work. So I call it the Mercury that neon built. Oh, that's great. Wait, so I assume he only does Mercury's. It'd be weird if he worked on any other car. Well, he I wouldn't hire him for, specializes wouldn't in Mercury's. Um, yeah, he, um, he, he does the old Model T hot rods and different mm-hmm. things too, you know, but yeah, Mercury's are his, his forte. Have you ever, I mean, this is probably a dumb question, but have you ever put like neon inside of one of your uh, hot rods? Cause that would be amazing or underneath. That would look really cool. 
No, we used to do that in the early 90s at the neon shop I worked at. And then um, I did a neon, um, like hidden neon in a tailgate with a etched glass um, logo and they're like cut out yeah. where it, the, the etched glass glowed from indirect neon. But oh, um, That's so yeah. cool. That's amazing. I had a, a 1950 Plymouth, which is... Uh, not a particularly cool car, but I always wanted to have one and, and learn how to work on it. And that's, I mean, I'm sure you know, those are remarkably easy to work on. There's plenty of room under the hood uh, yeah. to move around. There's barely anything under there. And an oil-based air filter, which I'd never yep. heard of before. Yeah. Uh, and that, it just became too much. I wasn't good enough. I just, <laughs> like the brakes went out like while I was driving and I was like, I can't, I'm not, I don't have the time for this. But there, I, I've always had a thing for old cars, man. It's that era. It's a cool time to have a car, you know? Yeah, I love them, and um, they uh, they're a lot a lot of work, but oh, it, yeah. you you can't stop and you know get gas or pull into anywhere without making a friend and talking to right. someone. You know, everyone yeah. everyone wants to, and then plus for my business, when my truck has my logo on the sides of it, so right. you know that really helps when it's parked out by Roadhouse <laughs> Relics exactly. representing. You know, so. Right. So how did you go from from doing cars in San Diego to coming out back to Austin? Well, I um I didn't come back to Austin. I went back to Houston. I had passed this place. <laughs> if I'd have stopped in Austin on the way to San Diego, I never would have gone to San Diego. <laughs> I, I just I, that I was looking for something and I thought it was in San Diego and then when I got there I realized how much I missed Texas. It was the mm-hmm. first time I'd lived out side of texas and so i said man i you know san diego's cool but i, w- I want to get back to texas so i went back to houston and started a paint and body shop and um i, I just along the way i just uh, i decided you know i really need to go to school and um when I was a little boy, I wanted to be an artist. That's all I wanted to be is a fine artist. And all throughout junior high and middle school and all that, I drew every day. I just, you know, I was the one that did the yearbook cover and the teacher's bulletin boards and all of that. And I just was so confident I was going to be an artist. And uh, when I took out, you know, like out of high school on my own, I lost all confidence to just be a fine artist for art's sake. And so that that's when I started looking for something like custom cars mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. um to to play in the art world but still tell the the folks back home I've got a real job, you know. Right, yeah. And so uh that really wasn't working for me and so I decided to go to school for graphic design and that's a way of having a kind of a practical job and not not scaring yourself so bad as just trying to sell fine art, you know, so I started, um, I went to the Art Institute of Houston for two years and then Sam Houston State University in Huntsville Mm -hmm. for two years. And then, um, you know, it just kept nagging at me that I wanted to be an artist, but I pushed it down and just decided I was going to do graphic design. But I started painting signs in college to pay my way through school. Mm -hmm. And so I just fell in love with the typography and hand handcrafted typography and the the colors the color combinations and i was painting it wasn't canvases but it was mm-hmm. signs and um i had this goofy vw thing uh convertible and me and my buddy took off on a spring break road trip one time and i just i wasn't even supposed to come to austin i was supposed to go to new Braunfels, which is this river um town where you get in the tube and ride down the river and Mm -hmm. we just happened to like not be paying attention we're supposed to turn outside of bastrop texas and go to new Braunfels, and we're chatting away and we go like 20 miles too far and i come over the hill and i go i see the you know the skyline of austin i went man we missed our turn you know Mm -hmm. so i'm like well let's just go into austin we'll tool around a little bit and we'll go to new Braunfels tonight and i'm driving around Austin in this goofy car that looks like a dumpster mm-hmm. and I'm I'm just I'm seeing all these neon signs everywhere and um you know at that time I was realizing I'm not going to be able to sit in an office and do graphic design I've I've got to find something I can do and I grew up in my dad's welding shop and and so I just I really wanted to do something where I could work with my hands and I'm driving around Austin and 
on Lamar and 12th, there was this Terminix exterminator sign with this enormous 3D bug <laughs> that that was like made of like many different types of bugs. This guy just created it in the late 50s as an art yeah. piece. And it was a 3D carved out fiberglass bug with wing metal wings. And I told my buddy, I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move here and I'm going to learn how to make neon signs. And so I went back home. I never finished college. I, I quit school and pulled a old 54 Spartan over to Austin uh, travel trailer mm-hmm. and um, set up in a trailer park and headed out and looked around at all the neon shops in town. And I found this little mom and pop shop called Ion Art. And they had a tiny little gallery and they were doing stained glass and etched glass and kind of more artistic neon signs. Mm -hmm. You know, in the early 90s, most people were doing big metal boxes with plastic faces and fluorescent tubes. But these guys were still like, no, we're doing just neon, you know. And so I I went in to inform them that I have decided to work there and they're like <laughs> I just thought that would work you know like all right I'm gonna go tell them the good news you know? right, right of course and they're like no we don't need any help you know we're just a little small shop so I came back every day for like probably 10 days and I just I've said before like I was either gonna get them to hire me or they're gonna put a restraining order on me <laughs> but I'm coming back until these guys hire me and they finally did and I worked there for almost three years wow. uh, and when, how does that work when you when you like just keep going into a shop? You're like, hey, oh, is it like Cheers where everyone's like, hey, what's going on? Or they're like, geez. Well, it bugged them early on, but I'm a businessman. And if someone came and showed that much desire to come work for me, eventually I'd be like, wow, this is kind of a rare thing to have someone really want to work for you that bad. And I, I just figured like I'm going to, you know – my tenacity is going to win out here and I'm they're finally because I went around to the other shops again and I just went I don't want to work on, at these places you know mm-hmm. they wanted me to because I had paint and body experience to to spray the the transparent colors onto the plastic faces and I just went this I want to learn neon you know like I want to learn how to make neon signs mm-hmm. and so I just kept coming back until they finally just they Caved, got up they broke <laughs> yeah, well they got a big job in and they said, well, we only need you for two weeks. We've got this big fish taco place that just opened. And so um, just luckily, I, I, I told myself when I went in, I'm making myself indispensable to these people. I'm going to do everything I can to keep this job. Yeah. And I stayed there for three years. Wow. You know? And so is that where you really learned the art of neon or is that just where you were kind of like learning oh, the did. basics? Yeah, I, I learned the art and the sensibilities and and how to make one that can go outside and not you know burn out when the when it rains and things we were right. signs and so yeah. you know greg the owner would go let's see what happened with this sign the guy that built it did this thing and so the wire you know and he he said if you do that it's going to fail every time it rains so we would kind of tear that part out and we would do it the way it's supposed to be done and um and he he showed me a lot about how to make a neon sign that that is you know quality. They 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 always really emphasize quality, and they're, they're still in business. They're still great friends of mine, even they're family to me. But they still are known for their quality. Wow! So they're not competing, like turn them into competitors or anything like that, because you guys are all on the same. Yeah, early on when I left, you know, I was we were bidding on the same jobs, and you know, I remember the first one that I got that was a really big job was uh, La Zona Rosa, and it was one block from their shop, and aye, aye, aye. and I wasn't trying to, you know, I just needed the money, and and they called me and said, hey, we you know we want to take bids on this, so I designed a package and I actually redid their logo based on two old logos. And, um, I'm like, this is what you need. And they said, yeah, we want you, you do it. And so, you know, early on I was kind of competing with them, but then when I worked for them, I made this art deco neon sign for, um, uh, just as a decor piece for a, um, Cajun restaurant inside. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was Jack's beer kind of a reproduction type sign. And that's when I made that sign, that's I realized like this is the style I want to work in because mm-hmm. in the early nineties it was like 
brushed aluminum and you know just it, it had more of a kind of a techno looking style to it you know the, right. the the classic look wasn't really in but i decided like this is this is it again like just seeing that terminix bug again the sky opened and i went yeah this is the style <laughs> i want to work in right so i left in 1994 or early 95 and i started roadhouse relics and i I'm not sure. I don't know of any place. It, I could be wrong, but I think it was the first commercial sign company anywhere that if you wanted one of my pieces, it had to look 50 years old the day I put it up. <laughs> and so, and people didn't get it at first. They're right. just like, why would I want a rusty sign? And I'm like, well, someone's passing through town and they see this. They think you've been, you know, in business for a really long time. You must be doing something right, you know. <laughs> And um, this piece is going to become kind of a little landmark in your neighborhood. Just yeah. trust me. Yeah. And people trusted me, and they let me start making these vintage-style signs that that meshed in with the antique signs that were in Austin already. You know, they just kind of fell right in yeah. the the street cityscape. And 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 I uh, I made commercial signs from. You know, like 1994 1995 all the way up to 2005 and closed that business and finally had the confidence to become a fine artist and um while i was turning down you know down checks at me and i was we want you to do this business and i'm I just when i'm set my mind to something I, I don't go back and i just said no i'm making art and that's all i'm gonna do and so it was tough for a few years but you know we turned the the sign shop into a gallery and um, I had met my wife that year and she was really a lot of the inspiration for me to, to go for it. And um, it took a couple of years, but uh, finally, again, like my commercial sign business, it took off and people started, the New York Times wrote about my good gallery is a must-see mm-hmm. location in Austin and uh, started uh doing a lot of work for celebrities and it just all of a sudden it just and the internet helped a lot because I was able to have a website and I could ship these beyond a little tiny realm of Austin because I was most the pieces I was selling weren't selling in Austin I was shipping them all over the country and now all over the world yeah well I've got a couple questions there so number one when the people trusted you to give them old looking signs did their businesses take off like you promised, or were they crushed immediately and out of they business? Took, and... They took off like crazy, oh. and people were coming in saying, we, we stopped because of the sign. Yeah. And um, I told people early on, if you let me do my job, this will not be an expense. It will be an investment, and you'll get all of your money back that you pay me for this sign, you'll get it back from your customers. And every single one of them said, this sign's already paid for itself two or three times over, you know, like yeah. in 10 years time, you know? So, um, yeah, they, they, and now Austin has this identity of vintage style signs. I got out of it in 2005, but there's other sign companies that specialize in vintage style signs that have, have, they're still making amazing pieces. And, you know, I don't get around a lot much anymore. Like I'll go to the East side. I'm like, look at all these new signs that look, if you drove into Austin from somewhere and you've never been here, you would honestly think this town has just really kept up with its antique signs. <laughs> right. way. But 90% of them are, are within 10 years old. Well, so let me ask you this question. Let me play devil's advocate here because this is kind of part – I've heard you say this before, and this is the part that is kind of confusing to me. Um, and maybe it's just my Midwest upbringing, but – why would you ever turn down paying work? Like, isn't isn't a commission the same as doing something for commercial? Like, that Terminex bug that inspired you, like, someone built that. That was either a commission, um, someone asked an artist to do it, or it was, you know, uh, it, it was. it's just a, it's a job, right? Or someone made it as an art piece and someone else bought it. W- what's the difference? Well, um, the... Sign guys that made those pieces, they were the original, I call them the original street artists, you know, and, and they were truly artists. But um, I wanted my pieces to be fine art. And I could just, as I got older, I realized, like, I've made 50 signs in this town, and now 20 of them have 
become something different and they weren't maintaining them properly and they would change them around. And so I just realized like there's not going to be much of a trace of me someday if I, if I just make these commercial signs there. And now most of them have changed or they've moved to different locations that don't allow them. So a lot of my signs are gone, but, um, I, um, I just realized that if I didn't burn that bridge behind me and I kept telling myself, well, maybe I can just make art on the weekends and make commercial signs during the week. But, um, I just really wanted to be an artist more than anything in the world. And so I, I stubbornly refused to, to do these signs commercially. And, and I really wanted to stick with putting all my focus on creating art because it took everything that took every day, all day to make it work, not just making the piece, but learning branding and learning, um, how to promote my business and make mm -hmm. a press kit. And then I, I started doing public engagements and I was terrified. So I actually night times I took acting classes, you know, to, <laughs> no because I was terrified to speak in front of people huh. and to speak on TV and things. So yeah. I took acting classes for three years just to get over that. But yeah. I, I realized it was going to take a full effort of me working every day to be an artist if I ever wanted to 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 go down in the history books as a neon pop artist. Right. So I kind of I stayed stubborn with it, and I it was hard, but. Anytime I try to move forward, I, I, I really try hard to burn the bridge behind me, you know, and um, <laughs> so that I can't retreat, you know. Sure. Yeah. Some people would say that's probably the worst way to go through life. I know I've burned a lot of bridges. I wish I could uh, go back on the other side of the, the river, you know. Yeah, but it, you know, it. I had never felt more alive when I embarked on that and and got rid of all of my big sign making tools and turn my place into a gallery with a small studio. But, um, you know, we just, I kept the name roadhouse relics and I just made it roadhouse relics, vintage neon gallery, vintage neon art gallery. And, um, you know, for a couple of years it was hard, but I was with my wife. And so we were kind of in it together and, um, I just knew it was going to eventually work because, it's what really made me happy. And I didn't care if it didn't work as long as I could just make enough money to keep doing it. I, I never did this to, to get rich. And it certainly wasn't any guarantee that it was going to be a success. But I knew I was going to keep doing enough to, you know, the movies back then kept me kind of busy. So I was doing a lot of movie props. But um, I was just, I just knew I was going to do enough to, to keep the doors open. And that's really all I needed to do. And now it's super popular Ooh, right yeah yeah now it's a different story but you know if i may continue to play devil's advocate i mean if you know we live in the era of the internet and you know if it wasn't for a new york times article this nothing may have happened so you could have stubbornly worked on art and you would have been the starving artist that your parents thought you were going to be yeah. uh, with a family that's i mean it's a bold move um, it's just funny because and the only reason why I'm bringing this up is because, you know, I've got a lot of people talk about, you know, you live in LA and it's like, you know, one, there's a saying in baseball, one crack of the bat gives you a home run. Right. And so you can, it's, it, it, it's so easy to, to become successful and it could just be a minute away. However, for every success story, there are 10,000 failures, stories of failure that were the exact same lead up, right? Everyone's on the same road and one guy got through. Um, you were the guy that got through. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. What you do is amazing. And I should also mention here in this little rant that I'm doing on the Wikipedia page for neon signs, there's a whole list of neon artists. You're not on that list. You should be upset. You should call Mr. Wikipedia. I was upset reading it because you're the neon sign guy in the United States. Well, we've, I've worked at trying to get on Wikipedia and they keep sending back some little technicality thing that, you know, Unbelievable. That, some some I hasn't been dotted and some T hasn't been crossed and I'm like, okay, well, let's submit it again. You know, like I, I, that that's a big thing. I want to be on Wikipedia and I think it would b benefit you know my my collectors and things as well. Well, it doesn't make any sense because like it's like saying I want to be on YouTube. You just make a video and upload it. If you want to be on Wikipedia, why can't you just like register and go on there? I could register. I should register and put you on there as a public service to you. Um, cause yeah, it's, they it's, have to like. They have to approve it. And, really? um, yeah. 
I mean, I guess that's good. I just didn't know that it was like that hard. We're, to get on. we're on the way, but they'll keep going. Well, we need more press. We need more of this. We need more uh, references and different things to cite. And I'm like, okay, well, here's more. I'm, I've got, you know, we just keep re- resubmitting, but it's been like a couple of years of trying to that's get on crazy. Wikipedia. You should see the people that have Wikipedia pages that have absolutely zero relevance in society. Um, and you've got quite a few articles. Anyway, I got to talk to you before we end up here. Uh, what was it like trying to be an artist growing up in Texas? Like, what was that like? I feel like you were like the Bobby Hill of your family. You know, like Bobby Hill yeah. just wanted to be a prop comic and Hank just didn't get it. And I feel like that was you. Yeah, it wasn't easy. And um, I, uh, my dad was a welder and a pipe fitter and, you know, everything was super practical with him. Mm-hmm. And he fought with me and he discouraged me every chance he got. My mom, you know, really encouraged me anytime there was an opportunity for me to take a little art class. I, I used to go to the, where the old ladies would get their hair done up in beehives. Purple and, beehives. And, yeah, and at night they had art classes in this little, you know, place where they fixed up hair. Yeah. And, um, you know, I took it and I, I, I took those classes. And I, she she really encouraged me to be an artist. Um, and in my dad's favor when I started Roadhouse Relics he still didn't quite get it but for years he worked with me and helped me build that business so I I can't just say you know he fought me the whole way but um, just the influences of I mean Texas was a real practical place and they didn't Mm -hmm. understand art and why anyone would be an artist and so me and a couple of buddies that all loved art you know when all the kids started playing football and got into girls and all that. We stayed with the art. And um, so you kind of find like-minded people. And so we had this little bunch of kids that, you know, four or five guys that still loved art. And Mm. we just sit around and draw all day. And, um, you know, so we kind of just, we weren't popular. We (laughs) didn't have any chance of being popular. I drove (laughs) old 50s cars and, um, you know, work that did art and I was like a I'm a five foot eleven two hundred pound guy so the coach was chasing me down the hall wanting me to play football every right. day and I'm like oh man I don't want to do that you know right. and I I did play football for a while but I sucked at it and I wasn't I'd grab the ball like I go which way do I run? You know, I don't even have any have a philosophical conversation about like well do I run left or right? It's really important. Yeah. What position so. did they have you play? I was nose guard on defense, but every now and then I would recover a fumble. I'm like, I have no idea which direction to go. And so I just kind of like go kind of slow till someone tackled me, you know, like (laughs) that's really funny. You know, it's, it's just an interesting place because you, you ended up in Austin and for anyone who knows Texas, Austin is kind of the only place for people like you that are from Texas who are interested in anything that isn't, um, you know, a practical kind of uh, Texas life, you know, for lack of a better term. It's a, Austin is a very unique place, um, you know, very different different than the rest of Texas. Uh, so is that kind of, do you think people just, you know, these every, artists exist everywhere, um, interesting, different people exist everywhere. Do you think they just kind of, you know, build it and they will come kind of a thing in Austin? Or how do you think Austin became the center for that? Uh, yeah, Austin just uh, was this place that attracted the the misfits, you know. it's mm-hmm. it, I always say it's where the misfits fit, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's like that t- that Christmas show where um, Rudolph goes to the land of the misfit toys <laughs> and they're, they're, yeah, yeah. they're like all weird. and But they all fit in in one place. And Austin was that place. It was like this oasis in the middle of Texas and in the middle of this just super practical state. It, right. These guys were like, you know, they were doing – Austin doesn't really care what you're into as long as you're an original and you're genuine and you put yourself wholly into it they they'll support you and they it doesn't matter what you're into you know mm-hmm. we're very accepting here but I will say I mean back in the 80s and 90s you know Texas was that kind of you know the cities were 
really super practical. But, you know, Houston and Dallas and even Fort Worth and San Antonio, they've come way around. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe it's the Austin influence, but there's a lot of great art going on around those other cities now. And they're encouraging a lot of other people that are into things that they don't quite understand. You know, the small (laughs) the small towns are still very small town. But um, but the bigger ones, you know, they, they Dallas is you know, and Houston both are two of the the biggest art cities I think in the country. If you really study the, what's going on there, yeah, I would beg to differ. I think Chicago, New York have have pretty big uh, art presence as well. But but I think you're you. I understand what you're saying. Probably pop art, maybe. Yeah. Uh, uh, so now, how can people find you if they find themselves in Austin? If they're not going to Austin just to see you, which I recommend that they do. How do people find you online? And if they're in the city, how do they find you? I'm at roadhouserelics.com, and then my fine art limited edition pieces are on toddsandersart.com. I bought this old crumbling fruit stand in 1997, and I turned it into Roadhouse Relics Art Gallery. It's uh, at 1720 South 1st on the corner of Annie and South 1st Street, and if you've ever seen any austin instagram you'll see the greetings from austin postcard mural that's on my wall right and so me and two other artists painted it in 1997 when my building didn't have a roof we painted the mural we like worried about the mural first and the roof later but uh we did it just for fun and now we have tour buses pulling up all day long i mean it's just become a real iconic image for austin i just went over there today just to grab this book for reference for this podcast and you know there was there was a line going down the sidewalk people waiting to take pictures at the mural but um yeah if you drive down south first at night just look for the all the glowing neon and uh, you'll see roadhouse relics there's a big arrow out over the door that says this is it and it's blinking (laughs) so you know when when you see the this is it arrow you know pull over and come on in we'll show you around and i've got the backyard is like a neon boneyard so it's a lot of antique iconic not just neon signs i've got the terminix bug now i actually you You got it I own the Terminix bug. Wow. Are you going to restore is, it and put it up? Yeah, I'm restoring it right now. It's, oh, it's taking cool. a lot of work because it's from the 50s, and right. I'm going to kind of tear it down and rebuild it back up. But I've got a 20-foot chicken from the Leslie's Chicken Shack in Waco, and I've got these 3D carvings of a girl blowing a kiss and just car parts and gas pumps and antique neon signs all in the backyard um, nestled around a 1950s Detroiter travel trailer and so um wow. that's kind of something to see too that's amazing um it's funny that you're known for a painted mural instead of all the i know like, and what? people don't even know slap your head for that, that wall. They, they um we we eventually now we've there's doors right by the mural and um they're now they open up and go into the store so there's like a, a little gift shop that we created that my wife runs now so uh-huh. Um, but yeah, people will pull up, get out, take a picture and get back in their car and leave and have no idea that one foot away on the other side of that door, some of the neatest art in the city, you know, being created right there. That's crazy. The Instagram world we live in. Uh, well, speaking of where, where are you on social media? How can people find you? Um, I have Roadhouse Relics on Facebook and then hashtag Roadhouse Relics on Instagram. Um, I think I've got Twitter, but I don't think I've ever done a... (laughs) A tweet. So I, I don't, the thing I love is Instagram. That's the one that I really try to put a, um, as much work on, yeah. and I enjoy I, I enjoy it myself, going on and seeing my pieces yeah. and seeing other people's work. I'm, you know, and cars and just goofy stuff. I, 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 Instagram's kind of my favorite. Well, Facebook's will... a little too far. You know, yeah, oh, I know. It's, it's well, too much of a rant. I will have all links to all that, even your dead Twitter feed. So let me ask you this question. Do you have, we didn't really get into your process. Do you have 10 minutes to run through your process as sure. a little bonus yeah. episode? Great. Yeah. So we'll do that. Um, but for right now, I want to thank you so much for, for being on the show today. I'm honored. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenco production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. 
The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design, written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this episode and want to subscribe, I've got a couple of options for you, including a new one. We are now on Spotify. You can check us out on Spotify or on Google Play, TuneIn, iTunes, and of course, Stitcher. Uh, Check us out there. If you don't know the links, easy place for them fascinatingnouns.com scroll to the bottom of the page i got nice brand new icons where you can click and get links right to your favorite podcast player next to that to the right you are going to see all of our social media you can find links to the show's twitter facebook instagram pinterest and youtube pages all at the bottom of the fascinating nouns webpage, and of course to the far left you can subscribe to our newsletter where you can find upcoming episodes behind the scenes and of course other projects that i'm doing uh if you go to the top you can find all of our episodes and every single guest that we've had on the show you can go and find their bio page and check out the videos the tons of pictures all kinds of stuff And of course, if you like this show, you're going to love my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, FGGBT.com. That's FGGBT.com. That is the webpage. What's the show about? I take pop culture technology, all the things you find in your favorite comic books, sci-fi movies, and we explain them in real life. Uh, I love cartoons. I love the Acme product catalog. Of course, Portable Holes was one of the first ones I wanted to do. We got Mr. Fusion from Back to the Future. And the new stuff, we got the Quantum Pager from Captain Marvel. We tell you how to send a message across the galaxy, all on fascinating gadgets, gizmos, gear-based technologies, FGGBT. And if you like that show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out about every project that I am up to. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.